This is a Whole Observatory podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Welcome to Starsport. Hello, this is Cody Halfman, and you're listening to Star Stuff. Today, I'm joined by a co-host, Haley Osborne. Hi, guys. And uh, today, we've got two special guests back by popular demand. We've got Kyler. Hi, everybody. And hey, Dr. Teddy. Hello again. <laughs> yes. We don't, yeah, we've we've got the... Do the Dr. Teddy. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be Dr. Teddy. Or we it's could do... ongoing uh, thing. <laughs> Dr. Keen, Dr. Coretta. It's like there's like a... I don't know. There's something snazzy to that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I like the way that sounds. Uh, we're going to be talking today about, uh, this was actually a request that we cover. Uh, so our movie review episodes, I think we've done two. One was kind of like about the, the soundtrack in movies. They're really popular. Uh, so we we're going to do another one. And it was suggested that we do the thing. And right when I mentioned it, um, Teddy and Kyler were both very down to do this. Um, I think Haley, it was your first time watching the thing. Yeah, I right? had never seen it before this. I had not either. And Kyler hadn't either, which is great because Kyler, uh, in his astronomy career, has done astronomical research in Antarctica. Is that right? So I did not get to travel there myself, but the project right. was based there. So um, a bunch of my colleagues have been. So I, I'm very familiar with how, how things work down there. I'm really sad I, I didn't get to go. I should have pushed harder when I was in grad school. Mm-hmm. I think it would have looked better on my um, astronaut applications, too, if I had been in that. How should you <laughs> that? And so, so just in case you haven't seen this movie, um, first of all, you shouldn't listen to this episode yet because we will be spoiling the movie. Um, Go watch it and come back. The episode. Yeah. The movie. Sorry. Uh, Go watch the movie and then come back and listen to this amazing recording. So really quickly, uh, just talking about our background and why we are the the best resource on the internet for reviewing this movie. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk really quickly about your backgrounds, um, specifically, Teddy, your uh, research into um, unidentified flying objects, otherwise known as like meteors and comets and those kind of fun things. And Kyler. I'm going to get the weirdest emails after this. Yeah, you are. That's my goal. That's my goal. And uh, Kyler, what you did study in the um, in Antarctica. Oh, and I didn't tell you about my time at a CIA black site where we were um, testing, doing tests on aliens, right? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we will definitely cover that in this episode, but everyone has to listen until the very end. So let's listen to this entire podcast. Yeah, and sign up the for the end. Patreon where, where Kyler yeah, and I talk about Patreon. our time at Groom Lake. <laughs> yes, and then we will have to kill you, but you'll get that information <laughs> as promised. <Yeah. laughs> so Kyler, you first. What's What was going on and what were you doing up there? Down there? So the there? Uh, project was called the Antarctic Muon and Neutrino Detector Array. It's now um, called Ice Cube. Um, unless we didn't get uh, sponsorship by the rapper, we, we tried. Ice Cube? Uh, what? Okay, Ice Cube. Ice Cube. Get on Twitter at us. Sponsor's not too late. 
Okay, so <laughs> we we drilled down into the ice and we put photomultiplier tubes, basically light detectors, down in the ice, and it's called ice cube because it covers a cubic kilometer. They go. They actually start a kilometer down to get uh, past the impure ice. So they go from one to two kilometers down, and then they go a kilometer in every direction. It's not solid light detectors. We have, we have, we drill boreholes down and then we drop strings with these detectors on them. So we create a grid. It's like a 3D grid of these light detectors. And what that does is we can see um, particles traveling through the ice. Um, if they're traveling faster than the speed of light in ice, they emit what's called Cherenkov radiation. If you've ever seen pictures of a nuclear reactor or been inside a nuclear reactor, I mean, who knows what kind of mutants y'all are. Um, <laughs> then um, then there, there's this blue glow that comes from the particles that are emitted by this radiation um, are actually traveling faster than the speed of light in this medium. They don't go faster than the speed of light full stop, but the speed of light is variable depending on the kind of material you're in. Mm -hmm. And so if you, it's basically, if you think of like a sonic boom, that's something traveling faster than the speed of sound and it creates a, a shock wave. It's doing exactly the same thing, but with light instead of sound. So that's oh, a okay. way of saying okay. we, we built a particle detector in the ice at the South Pole and we're looking for neutrinos coming through the ice and you can get billions of them going all the way through the earth. So actually this detector looks down. Well, it doesn't look in any particular direction, but it can see down through the earth, uh, neutrinos coming up from the Northern hemisphere all the way through the ice and if they all the way through the core of the earth. And if they interact just in the last kilometer or so of the ice, you'll get it creating the neutrino creates a muon. The muon is what travels faster than the speed of light. And so you'll get a, what's called a Cherenkov cone. That's this, this sonic, it's this light boom. And we, we see that with our light detectors. And then if this de detector at the bottom goes off first and then the next one up and the next one above that, we can actually measure the track of the neutrino to within uh, better than a degree or so. And then we look at the sky and say, what's out there? Is there a galaxy there? Is there a gamma mm. there? So is the uh, Cherenkov radiation your um, your villain origin story, Tyler? <laughs> no. Yes. Okay. Just confirming that. That's fantastic. Uh, so I did understand most of those words, but what is, a, what is a neutrino and why is it flying from these galaxies into the ice? So... Uh, we're familiar with astronomy with regular light. I mean, we look at photons. That's what all of our telescopes do. But there is astronomy with completely other things. We have particle detectors um, that I think it was Victor Hess first took one of these up in a balloon, and he expected the radiation from the Earth to go away. But what was crazy was as he got up higher, the amount of radiation he detected, the amount of particles he detected went up. And so it, it turned out there's all these things coming from space. So like a supernova doesn't just put out light. We see the, the light from it, but it will put out um, all sorts of other particles, um, including neutrinos. Um, it's similar to the idea of how we detected gravitational waves, uh, gravitational radiation recently. It's, it's using um, detectors to see things other than light from space. So huh. and a, a neutrino is one of these fundamental subatomic particles that is so small it will actually go through what's what's the something like a light year of lead which is still not enough to stop your average neutrino nice. um, what? So, but the ice is well 
Yes and no, because there's billions and billions of these things coming through, coming from the sun, coming from stars every second. We really only need to see one. Um, so uh, uh, the, a good example I can think of is the supernova that happened in 1987A. Uh, in early in 1987, it was called Supernova 1987A. 1987A, okay. There's a, uh, there was an astronomer observing uh, in Chile, and he went out for a smoke break and looked up at the sky, and he could see it. He's like, hey, that's a new star. Think of how many photons had to come from 2 million light years away to his eye for him to detect it, um, just looking up at the sky. And then the, the telescopes went and looked at it, and it was great. From that... Um, supernova that's, I don't know, trillions of photons or whatever, we saw eight neutrinos between two different detectors. Actually, three different detectors. I think one didn't see any, but eight neutrinos between these different detectors. And that was enough for a signal because the background is just so, there's, neutrinos interact so rarely, you know, there's billions and billions of them going through the earth every second. And, you know, one in however many interacts in the ice, we can see it. Got it. So is this a subspace particle? I don't know what subspace means, but it sounds cool. <laughs> um, it is It is a subatomic particle. It's Subatomic, it's not, still cool. So it's not a protons or neutrons or electrons. It's some other thing entirely. Um, so there's, there's protons, electrons, and neutrons that make up matter. There's um, photons, and there's a bunch of other... Um, particles that, that just sort of exist and we can measure. I think I, I mentioned this a little bit in one of the earlier podcasts, how I had to study not just astronomy, but all of particle physics as well to um, right. really understand all this. Yeah, that was in, the, was that in the Path of a Scientist episode? I think so. So I guess pause this episode, go away and get a PhD in particle physics, and then come back and listen. <laughs> back. Yes. Or just go back and listen to the Path of the Scientist episode, which is where um, Kyler got his fame among the Star Stuff fans. <laughs> but you're, you're definitely here because of the, the, you know, you know the secrets of the the Antarctic and all the creepy Yeah, research. oddly enough, there were no particle physicists doing experiments in um, – whatever the, the base was that Kurt Russell and company were at. Right. Um, that it? we know. That's unconfirmed. We're not quite right. sure. Yeah. yeah. They were digging in the ice, though. But They were. Dum-dum-dum. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Love that. So, uh, Teddy, what is your background in UFOs, a.k.a. asteroids, comets, and centaurs? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just not going to bite. I, you know, I know gonna, too well. Not take I, that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, among, you know, I studied the, the small bodies of the solar system, the comets and asteroids, um, primarily with telescopes here on the ground and, and perhaps relevant to this episode. One of the reasons that we care about comets and other sort of outer solar system objects in particular is that they're made mostly, or at least a really large fraction of them are ice. And they probably had to form with all that ice when the solar system was forming about four and a half billion years ago. So, you know, I, I did like the movie before I went into comet science, but it is awfully, yeah. you know, it's, it's a pleasant coincidence that the movie is about preserving things long-term in ice. And one of my research interests is, you know, even if the ice had to, you know, first condensed and, you know, formed as a little solid block at the start of the solar system, that doesn't mean it hasn't changed since. This is, you know, one of these issues that might seem sort of small if you just say, you know, what's happened to ice over 4 billion years. But, you know, it can really tell you something because if the ice hasn't changed that much, maybe we can go into the ice and, and figure out, 
you know, what were the actual conditions when this thing happened, right? You know, when we go out and look at some comment and you look at what's in it, you know, you're not just, you know, making some table like, okay, this comment looks like this, this other comment looks like this. You're slowly finding the puzzle pieces to figure out what the actual conditions, the, the temperatures, the composition of little different parts of the early solar system. Um, hmm. And it's, it's one of these puzzles that just will take, you know, decades and decades of lots of people doing lots of different interesting things to solve. And that's, that's part of the reason I like it. And conveniently also, you know, it's the exact plot of this movie. So. <laughs> um, I have a question. Uh, so a meteorite hits earth and it's covered in ice. Um, would you, an astronomer studying said meteorite, know if buried in this ice ball hitting Earth was an alien spacecraft? So like say <laughs> okay, like I, the premise of the you. movie. So the premise of the movie is that this thing is it flies in through space and crash lands into the ice, right? Yeah. Uh, and you're studying a meteorite that has hit Earth. It's made of ice. Could you tell, based on the scientific astronomical calculations magic that you do out at the LDT, that this was an alien spacecraft and not just an icy rock? Okay, well, I suppose one of the, the first things that I feel obliged to say to avoid uh, any sort of uh, <laughs> miscommunication. So obviously, we have no evidence that we've we've seen alien no. spacecraft hit the Earth, right? Um, no, fictional and, movie, fictional. Yeah, completely fictional movie. Um, so yeah, when, uh, when meteoroids in outer space, hunks of dust and ice, um, make their way through the atmosphere, we call them meteors. When they hit the ground, if there's a chunk left over, we call that a meteorite. Um, and that's the thing you can go pick up with your gloves and go study in a lab, right? Um, if you actually go find a meteorite, one of these chunks of space dust, uh, spa space dust, space rock, sometimes they have some ice associated with them, but that's cer certainly not frequent. Um, you can figure out exactly what they're made out of. You know, you could even put them in a CAT scan, right? You could look at the interior structure. You could use x-rays to look through them like you get, uh, you know, an x-ray if you break a bone, right? Mm -hmm. So... You know, when we find these things, we're able to really, really accurately characterize them. Gotcha. Um, one thing that I will mention, just because I think it's it's interesting and we're on the topic, is um, when you find a meteorite, people often think of meteorites as having this like black sort of charred outside, right? You know, they mm -hmm. burn up as they go through the atmosphere. However, it's really only the outside that gets really heated. Um, you can, you know, if you had a meteorite, even if it was, you know, pretty small, the size of a baseball, even if the outside looks like it's been charred, the center could still be ice cold. It could still be as cold as outer space. Really? So there, yeah. You know, basically it just happens so quick, right? right? You know, it's only a couple of minutes tops from the first time this thing feels a, a molecule of the atmosphere to when it's mm -hmm. at the bottom, you know, a little mm -hmm. smoking pit. So, you know, there is some reason to think that, you know, even if you toss something through the atmosphere, even if you see this huge fireball, even if it's super hot to the touch, the center can still have material that has not changed and has stayed cold and frozen. Okay. And so, and you won't know what that meteorite is made of until you do that ground research or, or survey and find this object. So my whole point here is like, you know, objective break this movie so far. It could have been preserved in its descent into the uh, earth's atmosphere and into the ice 
Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it would have just all burnt up core out. And we wouldn't have known unless we did a ground survey to see what this meteorite was made out of to know for sure if it was a rock or uh, the thing. Yes. Not saying that this happens, just saying like so far it checks out scientifically. And one, one of the bits of the science that got right also was the, the age of the ice. Um, mm. And when you drill down, you, you're, you're drilling down the, the, the ice there has been um, accumulating for thousands and thousands of years. Um, actually, Antarctica is the, the driest climate on the planet. It's a desert, basically. Um, the only reason we don't think of it that way is because the, the little bit of snow that's fallen has had you know, um, millions of years to accumulate. Um, so when, they, when the, the guy in the movie says, you know, they, they drilled down, this thing has been in the ice for whatever it was, 1,000 years, 10,000 years, that, that's correct. Um, we actually do one of the fun things that was not in my field when I was studying uh, neutrinos, but we had people come and talk to us about was doing paleoclimatology. When we drill these boreholes to stick our detectors down in, you can also measure um, the bubbles in the ice. You can measure the pollen count, mm. stuff like that. So you can go back and see what the you know what the climate was like ten thousand years ago from studying the different layers of the ice. So it's like almost like a archaeology of ice. Yes, exactly. Iceology, ice archaeology, <laughs> arcticology. Got it. It's there somewhere. I'll find it. Uh, so, so this is where, just to set the set, uh, the setting. This is where our movie begins, right? This thing. Um, we don't see this as the watcher, but like in the scientific part of it, this thing has crash landed into the Arctic and frozen um, under the ice. So, um, what we see as viewers are these um, Norwegian. Is that right? I get confused now because we made so many jokes about Norwegian or Swedes. Yeah, they, Swedish. They are Norwegian. <laughs> okay, they were Norwegian. So I should say these Swedish people <laughs> in the movie, they keep getting it confused uh, as a joke because, you know, Americans don't know about anything outside of America. Um, but basically, they are chasing this dog with a helicopter and they're they look crazy they look like they have been mad uh trapped out here and that's possibly what's going on uh, and there is like a little shootout and one of my favorite quotes is i wrote down my, my notes was teddy um saying oh you know get drunk throw grenades out of a helicopter it's just a different culture who are we to judge because that's literally what the other people in our main stars acted like they're like i don't know let's go check it out but like they're probably just a little crazy <laughs> so, yeah it's like the start of the winter and these people are already like trying to kill you know this yeah. you know what is shown to the viewer is a dog but we know it's the monster they, and, like everyone seems to take dog. this like pretty nonchalantly they like do. Uh, you know Antarctica is a weird place. With the, with all of the aim of a season decorated stormtrooper, oh, yeah. <laughs> missing at every opportunity. I, I do uh, like the, the psychology of this movie. They, that's one thing they really nail um, is like being down in Antarctica. Like they, they do psychoanalyze you before they send you down, especially if you're going to oh. winter over. Like, tell us, tell they us. They want you to not, you know, 
stab your comments down there because you i mean it, it really takes a heavy toll on you being without light being inside for like six months you can't mm-hmm. leave you know you can't get out so i mean that it is a really severe environment so yeah mm-hmm. they really have to make sure you're mentally stable before they send you down there in case you throw grenades out of your helicopter you aiming for your dogs so right. a, a bit weird that it's the start of winter and they're already going crazy but yeah so and one another one of my favorite quotes just at the beginning of this movie we were kind of chatting and I asked Kyler if this was if this movie was the the regular safety video for Antarctic researchers and he was like <laughs> it's standard but you did tell us something right before this recording that was interesting about uh, this movie being shown out there yeah they actually screened it at the Amundsen Scott South Pole Station at like the start of winter February or something. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I'm not sure if how long that tradition has been going on, but yeah, it's, it seems like they, the people down there definitely, you know, can appreciate the, you know. Yeah. Nothing like setting the tone for yeah. your work than seeing people brutally murdered by something they found in the ice. I love this tradition. Oh yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> So yeah, just a quick recap. Uh, they, they take in this dog uh, and this dog is not what it appears to be. It brutally attacks uh, a few people in the, in the camp. And um, basically what they discover is that this dog is, this dog ain't right. Um, and that it can change form and it's vicious uh, and they don't recognize it. Uh, and they do recover some tapes from the other research site. Uh, it's never clear what kind of research either true either team is is doing or conducting. Uh, so we're not sure there, but there were some theories. We saw we saw a um, a telescope. Is that right on the set? I think it was a telescope. It looked it like a telescope. Building, yeah. yeah, there was a dome. So I think all of us were hoping it was a telescope. <laughs> right. So it is now canon that they were astronomers. So let's move <laughs> forward with that assumption. And uh, but yeah, they find these these recordings that they, there was something found in the ice. I think there was even a video that they played back and they were like, oh, crap. Um, and then they go out and they see that there was a spaceship that landed in the ice. So now they know they're dealing with some sort of alien life form and they know that it takes, uh, on the characteristics. It basically absorbs the organic being that it is trying to emulate. And there's a process here. It doesn't always get it right, but it becomes that being. And there are a few clues. So the clothes have to be ripped off. It doesn't like clothes, right? And uh, which includes like uh, earrings, nose rings, earrings, rings in the movie, which you can see in the movie when someone loses their nose ring or whatever. I think, Kyler, maybe you mentioned that that wasn't super popular at the like 1982 for scientists where they going around with nose rings. (laughs) I was not a scientist in 82, so I don't know. Oh, well, I would say uh, I maybe it was Teddy that made that comment. It was like, was that common? Uh, and I think it was a plot point. I think it was a plot point to be like, oh, look, now the ring, the nose ring's gone. They're the thing. Uh, so, yeah, let's um, let's sort of I just want to make a note. There was uh, a, the composer when the composer's name came on screen. I know this isn't scientific, but both Teddy and Kyler were like, ooh, uh, and it's uh <laughs> 
Ennio Morricone. Am I saying that correctly? Morricone. Morricone. Sorry. <laughs> um, actually, <laughs> Ennio Morricone. Um, why did that excite y'all? Uh, Kyler, you can go first. Uh, he's famous for doing westerns, what like the good, the bad, and the ugly, and so so it was. Uh, I was sort of expecting that kind of a soundtrack. The low whistle. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and nice. The soundtrack was amazing, though. It was terrifying. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, any Morricone is just like, like, what an incredible composer. But he also made, uh, like a bunch of stuff. He got famous doing westerns, and I think The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is probably still the, the most famous thing he made. But, um, you know, after that, he like branched out and did lots of stuff in like other genres. And it seems like the dude could just like do anything. Um, a personal favorite of mine is also The Battle for Algier, which is this like 1966 uh, movie about like the war for Algerian independence, where you can tell he's like doing, he's like learning to not do the Western thing because it's like not a Western anymore. Right. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's like, it's just so cool. I just love that guy. I love everything he does. Okay, I'll, awesome. I'll be quiet now. I don't want to be. <laughs> No, and it's interesting because this was um, a flop. Yeah. Even though it has like, I mean, the the cast list, actually, Haley, do you want to just like tell us the cast list? The cast list is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, John Carpenter, like classic icon. Uh, And there's the fact that this this composer is also well-known uh just it's so weird that it was a flop to me yeah so we've got like kurt russell keith david mm-hmm. wilford brimley before um, he was like 90 years old yeah the fact yeah that, <laughs> really amazing to see. yeah all kinds of people are yeah. on here it's fantastic uh but yeah it's a, it's unfortunate that it was a flop but uh it was catch- Ashton Kutcher is listed on this. I don't think that's right. Excuse me. What? I suspect Ashton was like an infant, right? Right? <laughs> was he even? Yeah, I guess he would have been born in 1982. Oh, there's like someone, someone on the cast looked like Ashton Kutcher, and I guess oh, they accidentally listed him. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, Lord. he was like an infant at that point in time. He was definitely not in that film. No, he was literally born that year that it came out. So uh, Ashton Kutcher, stop trying to troll us. Take your name off IMDb, my dude. So... I have a question for you guys. And we talked about this a couple of times while we were watching the movie, but like, what are your theories on why they had so many flamethrowers? How often are flamethrowers used in Antarctic <laughs> research? I I assume this was like a, a strict, like ice melting safety thing, right? Yeah. Like, um, like there's just no plausible way to de-ice stuff other than that once it gets that cold. A flamethrower. Right? Again, there's no other option than flamethrower not not the the sand stuff or cat litter or whatever you use when we're digging the holes for the the detectors in Antarctica we actually use jet fuel and that's it we heat the hot water we heat water and we use a water drill to to melt down two kilometers so I, I would have 
found jet wow. fuel more plausible. Um, when I lived in uh, Siberia for a couple of months, people were a bit cavalier with their their um, torches, just like basic, I, I don't want to say creme brulee torches, they were bigger than that. They were regular, I don't know, oxy-acetylene torches, but they would, their diesel fuel would start freezing in their fuel tanks. So they just take their torch to the outside of the fuel tank Oh my God. Um, yeah, that was a, a bit shocking. I, I never heard of any accidents. I mean, it's not using it to light their cigarettes. Just like, <laughs> um, well, Kyler, would you hear about the accident? <laughs> like, oh. I, don't, I don't mean to be gruesome here, but like, what, wouldn't the bad know? thing sort of just, you know, I, I don't I know. I don't want to say it. <laughs> but yeah, the, the flamethrowers were a bit of a surprise. I mean, it's a bit like, uh, you know, taking a gun to space, which they actually call out in Armageddon, for example. They're all like, hey, what is this dude doing? Why do you need a gun in space? Like, why do you need a flamethrower in Antarctica? I mean, yeah, I guess melting stuff, but I, I can think of more efficient ways to do that or, you know, smaller scale ways. So if you were, if, if this had been your team, Kyler, that, that discovered the thing, mm-hmm. all you would have done was supply it with jet fuel to get out of Antarctica. Okay. Just a direct line of jet fuel right to their ship. Love Good that. to note. Good to note. Love that for us. What are the odds... So we kind of talked about the science, like so far, so good. Um, but I just want to talk really quickly about the odds of something like this happening. And maybe that's going to get into like the theory of like comet seeding or uh, other organics and other areas of space that we are not, um, that we don't know about yet. Uh, the, the one thing that I always bring up that I'm hoping someone can answer for me is that I read a theory that in space, um, our sun is kind of middle-aged, right? Uh, and it's a pop two or pop three star, which means that it has come from the death of another star and possibly a death of a star previous. You can only go back so far to the big bang to allow for a sun like ours that would um, encourage life because of its elements, because of the items in it, because of its age, et cetera, and the size and everything, that if there are alien life forms in um, other galaxies, uh, we would kind of be the most advanced in the big brother because we sort of happened as soon as it could happen. Yeah, I, I, I suspect that uh, Kyler and I can probably both comment on this from different angles. But yeah. yeah, one of the things that I always think about with this movie is that this thing is more advanced than us, right? Like yeah. it's flying a spaceship. Granted, you know, it doesn't look like a 1950s B-movie flying saucer. Yeah, it does, right? But like, <laughs> yeah, it does. Inevitably, it's it's doing like interplanetary travel. It's doing all this stuff. And even after the thing crash lands and, you know, wakes back up and then, you know, spoiler for later in the movie, tries to build another ship. Like it, it's clear it just knows how to do this, right? Like <laughs> and it's, it smart. Makes me, it's smart and it makes me wonder like, okay, so this civilization or whatever created wherever the thing is from, like was already advanced enough that it had like, I don't know, the resources, the time to randomly wander close to the earth, right? Like, yes. so like the, you kind of just have to take it on faith because the movie's like not interrogating these questions, but it makes you think like the thing evolved first, right? Like it's been yeah. around to longer than us. Yeah. Um, they can build a, a spare a backup spaceship out of like spare parts from a helicopter. Track, a helicopter yeah. and tractor yeah. parts, right? Maybe it's like 
the their version of MacGyver. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we only have a sample yeah. size of one, but mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's pretty, pretty advanced engineering. And, yeah. yeah. So, uh, of all the things that happened that were non-alien based, which was the least or most likely to happen in the movie. Like, like for example, something we brought up quite a few times was Kurt Russell just not wearing a hat while <laughs> outside in the winter in Antarctica, you know, like. Yeah, he had a cowboy hat, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, that's going to keep you warm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of wonder whether or not the idea was like, well, do we make this realistic? Well, are we really going to hide all these talented actors behind the actual protective equipment they would are need? Are we going to hide Kurt Russell? Excuse me, 1982 right. Kurt Russell? No, thank you. Zero out of five stars. I think that was our conclusion. It was just hot enough that he yeah. needed to worry about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was so hot. It just, he would have overheated. Yeah, there, I mean, there's a scene later in the movie after they're in like full Antarctic winter. Someone says it's like minus 40 outside or something. And some guy runs outside before he zipped up his jacket, right? So he's yeah. wearing like a turtleneck. So like appropriate for like, I don't know, like, like, <laughs> like Ithaca in October. Right. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he's doing fine at the South Pole. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's just fun. It doesn't make any sense. My, um, my experience with negative 40 was not pleasant. Um, what was it? What did you have well, to do? Again, when I when I lived in uh, Siberia, it got down to minus forty Fahrenheit or centigrade. You ask. The answer is yes. Um, minus forty two centigrade is minus forty two Fahrenheit. Interesting fact. Anyway, what? Um, so things like I was so called my um, contact lenses would freeze in my eyeballs. Oh jeez! So I would not. I I couldn't wear contacts for you know. I had to wear glasses, which was also uncomfortable because if they're metal, then that will you know. How did you find that out, Kyler? Um, well, so I just had to go back inside and let them thaw out, and then I could take <gasps> them out, and I never wore them again. Oh, that, that is some Star movie BS right there. Yeah, I mean, that it, was, is... it was super uncomfortable. I mean, it would just—it felt like you know there was something wrong with it, and I, you know, I just had to like, I can't, I can't wear this. I'm going to go back inside. <sighs> did y'all um, see Christmas Vacation? Yeah. Do you know the beginning when she is like frozen and she's like, oh, she's excited, honey. Her eyeballs are just frozen open. <laughs> and she was like the kid. Anyway, that's what I, that's how I picture you now and forever. Um, and, and falling through ice, um, I, I just stepped through ice. So it only got sort of my lower leg, but that was super uncomfortable too. Whew. So yeah. I, Disgusting. I, I was sort of relating to the whole freezing to death thing. Nightmare. Really. So, so we have, we've established that, uh, some of the wear, not realistic. Uh, some of the the fact that there was an alien that was this advanced, probably not realistic, just because of how long um, the Big so Bang was. The the sun is what five billion years old, and the universe is thirteen. So yeah. there were earlier generations of stars. If they got the you know um, other elements and metals and stuff just right, in theory, things could have happened earlier mm -hmm. um but you need a star that's stable for a long time for the you know for you know civilization to develop and all that um mm -hmm. well we would need a five so ours is five billion and there are 13 billion to go around so uh depending on how long that pop one star was that went supernova and how long that took to form another star right. that was the pop two star. But we're not sure if our sun is pop two or pop three. I think right? it goes the other way around. Three are the 
earliest and two are in the middle and one are worsted. Is that right? What's going to happen with the next one? They'll be up to zeros. I don't know. Oh, that seems short-sighted, astronomers. So, okay, I'm sorry. Pop three was the first one. So we don't know if our star is a pop two or a pop one, correct? We're not sure if it comes from the death of two stars, the death of one yeah, star. How many generations back does it go? At right. At least one, because there's enough heavier elements in it, but possibly multiple generations. Right. And if that's the case, uh, and this was the perfect place to start Earth, but I do or start life, but I do want to mention that uh, we talked about this on a few episodes. Uh, life did not spring up on Earth once or twice, but three different times. <clears throat> so, um, you know, maybe this was just the case of this happened alongside us and their first rendition of life was successful, whereas ours was not. And we had to start over. Um, and then it was like, what, billions of years. And then this little speck is when it we went from crawling on land to typing on our computers. Um, so maybe they were able to do that in their first attempt at life, whereas Earth took three attempts. So we, we can get into the whole Drake equation if you want. Like, what's Go the, for it. I don't know what that is. Tell me. Um, so there was an astronomer, Frank Drake, who I think he was the, the godfather of the, the SETI project, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And he basically, at the time, it was quantifying our ignorance. But we actually have a lot more knowledge now so it's basically what is the chance that we're gonna interact with another um intelligent alien civilization out there so you start with you know how many stars are there and mm -hmm. so the star formation rate is a couple of stars per year in our galaxy and then what are the odds that this star will have a planet um actually pretty good we know that now um most a lot of stars have planets um what are the odds that it's habitable okay we're starting to figure that out you know on in our solar system, we've got Earth, you know, Mars maybe at one point was habitable. Maybe um, maybe Titan is habitable by some definitions. Maybe, you know, under the ice on Europa or Enceladus or whatever. So already just in our solar system, we have plausibly, you know, at least one, maybe four or five places that are habitable. And then, then come some of the, the sticking points that we don't have as good quantifiable data on. What are the odds that life will arise? What are the odds that it will get complex and then intelligent and then communicate? Um, so we know um, on Earth, also we have a few intelligent species. We've got humans, we've got great apes, we've got elephants, we've got dolphins. Um, only um, one of those has developed the technology to communicate you know, across planetary or solar system distances. Dolphins? Um, maybe cetaceans in general, like the whales in, you know, Star Trek four, who, who knows? Um, so <laughs> yes, they can communicate, but they don't make like radio dishes and stuff like that. Um, that we so, know of. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Fair point. <laughs> well, we've got, so it's sort of this, where, where's the bottleneck? What is the, the chance if, if, you know, life arises, if the chance is close to one, then you get, you know, civilizations everywhere. If the chances, you know, one in a billion, maybe we're the only civilization in the galaxy. So that's what this, the Drake equation quantifies all this. And it goes through, like I said, you know, stars, planets, habitability, life arising, you know. And then the last one is how long does a civilization last? And, you know, we've managed to not blow ourselves up for a couple thousand years, but mm -hmm. is that going to, you know, end tomorrow? Is it going to last 10 million years? Who knows? So that's based on our, the track record of the past, you know, yeah. few decades here, we're, we're on the fast track to 
uh, one of my favorite internet video memes, the end of the world, <laughs> but you know. Yeah, who, who knows when a, a meteor is going to become crashed into us? That's right, Teddy, Teddy would know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you take on the draft yeah. equation. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, stop bowing real estate. No, um, <laughs> no I mean, uh, one of the things I think about with this movie is, is that last thing that Kyle mentioned is how long do civilizations last, right? Like the story of this movie is them, you know, at first, you know, figuring out, you know, what is this dog? What's going on here? The second one is, okay, it's actually this alien, this monster. You know, what do we do? How do we fight it? And then spoiler, spoiler, spoiler alert, they realize they can't win, right? So you get to see them go through the whole process of, basically, you know, finding out there's a threat, assessing the threat, and then making the choice. And ultimately, I think the end of the movie sort of implies that, you, you know, they probably won, or at least they did as good as could be expected, right? They've yeah. they've at least frozen the thing down. None of them are going to go infect everyone else. But that's what sort of drives a lot of this tension is that it's not just them. It's this planet-wide problem. Yeah. And in the movie, I think they act, frankly, as rationally as could be expected, given the sleep deprivation, the cold, all the yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. But they are literally kind of trying to make that choice. Like, how do we weigh, you know, our, you know, interpersonal want to like not die against like the interpersonal big picture? How do we live as a society thing? Um, and I, I find that this sort of this interesting thing and that the group of humans together are able to concoct this plan. Like, OK, we're going to blow up the base. You know, let's kill it before it freezes. Yeah, they win by doing, you know, the violence that, you know, presumably everyone in the 80s was already thinking about the Cold War, right? But oh, the thing shows up alone. Yeah. You know, it's, it is, I, I always sort of wonder, is it the last survivor of wherever it came from, right? Like, has it experienced, you know, its own version of the apocalypse? And, you know, are we supposed to want it to maybe not die? Are we supposed to at least have some sympathy? I know it's violent and terrible, right? But So the, uh, the twist on that is, um, it is alone, but each component of it is its own separate organism. And that's actually, you know, relevant plot point that it wants to survive no matter what. And the humans beat it by self-sacrifice, de deciding that the way we're going to win is we're all going to die. Yeah. yeah. We're not mm -hmm. going to um, let it spread anywhere else, which is exactly Stalemate. what it doesn't do. Yeah. It, it yeah. wants to survive at all costs. And, um, and that's part of the, uh, um, I guess, what, what allows the humans to win, which I thought was a neat sort of, psychological point but i also thought it was interesting you, you're saying they acted as rationally as they could in this situation but that included being really paranoid and starting to murder each other because yeah. you know if this thing can take on your shape who knows you know maybe you're the thing yeah you know, should tie you all up of course i'm not the thing because i you know i'm hot and i'm the star <laughs> yeah but, but everyone else gets tied up or whatever and so i i think that that Mm -hmm. very human drama was I think the most compelling part of the story like is it science fiction is it not I, I have issues with the, the genre just because it's set you know in a place where there are scientists why does that make it science fiction there really wasn't a lot of sciencing happening unlike say the Martian or something like that yeah. that strikes me as much more science mm -hmm. fiction this the science was almost more just sort of the the wallpaper the furniture they're operating around um but it was it was more the the psychological drama of them slowly you know descending into paranoia and you know madness and like one of the most rational things the guy was is he starts trying to destroy the base he's you know taking an axe to the radio and stuff like that and they have to yeah. call him down but that's like absolutely if you decide this thing is going to get out and infect Earth you want to stop that yeah he made that decision early.
Yeah, that's something I was going to bring up because I told all of you guys, I was like, he is literally the only one I trust right now Mm -hmm. because he did that. He saw like, oh, if we let this thing get out, like it's going to take over everything. And uh, Mm -hmm. there's like very high chance of that happening. And so like immediately after seeing that, he goes out and he destroys the helicopter and Mm -hmm. he destroys all the equipment and everything. Mm -hmm. And um, it sucks because spoiler alert, he's the last thing, right? Because, uh, at some point in time, he gets got between there, he gets got because they just like left him in his own little area by himself. Like Mm -hmm. if they had all just stuck together, it would have worked out so much better because it's like Mm -hmm. the thing has to be like alone with you in order to take you over, you know? So I had a theory about that and I want to get y'all's opinion on this. So when the thing was the dog, in my opinion, it acted prematurely. It was listening and it, but it just attacked all the other canines. It could have waited longer. It could have waited months. It could have just been the dog until they got out. Um, But from my understanding, I think, and this is my theory, the dog didn't know that. So the thing didn't know that. Uh And then the dog soars take is taking on all these other characters, right? And learning more about what's going on. By the time he's the scientist, he's building a spaceship out of parts, which that character is the only one clever enough that would have known how to do that. So, so that's my theory. The physical form, he gets the cognitive abilities of the thing that he's inhabiting. Right, because the the thing in the later part of the movie wouldn't have ruined its opportunity to blend in as the dog if it had known it was going back at any point. But the dog didn't know that, right? Dogs don't have object permanence even, basically. So it's well, mine doesn't. So, um, so I think that's interesting. I mean, that's a theory. I'm not sure, a little fan theory, but... Um, I, I thought it was interesting that the different people it took on, the more clever it got. Yeah. There is a, I think it's a short story written from the thing's perspective. I haven't actually read it. No. Oh. But I guess go check it out. You know, is it, you know, trying to make friends with humans and like, you know, why are you attacking me? I'm just giving you a hug. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of you. So on that, um, so didn't read the short story, but would y'all uh, watch the prequel? I, I definitely would. <laughs> I, want, I really want to, yeah. All right, awesome. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to include that. Um, I want to watch that. I loved it, but I <laughs> I'm in the minority. I think a lot of fans didn't like it. I I geeked out because I thought that they did a really good attention to detail with like the set and all of that, which I just really appreciated. Um, but it's definitely a totally different vibe, that, that uh, which you saw from the trailer. I really liked about this movie was the the creature effects. The practical effects were amazing, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and especially for not you know having CG and stuff like that. Like the the animators and stuff, they they were brilliant. Yeah, they were the puppet the puppeteers. Yeah, some some of those you know take me out of the movie when when you say like oh that's ridiculous, but th- this the was CG. really really well yeah. done. Yeah, yeah. The dog. The- looked just like my greyhound, which I thought was freaking hilarious. Uh, I mean, it literally looks like a greyhound. If you look up the pictures of the dog, the thing, that's what my dog looks like. (laughs) 100%. Um, I did have a question though. Um, And Teddy, you answered this while we were watching it, but what's your guys' favorite part of the movie? (laughs) 
I, I perhaps I could go first while you do were thinking. <laughs> okay, yeah. so so it's the first scene when they're uh, you see get to see Kurt Russell. He's playing chess against the chess bot, um, and you know he thinks you know he's hot stuff. He's so good at chess, but he's also clearly you know chain drinking the entire movie. So yeah. he gets checkmated by the robot, and he he swears at it, and he pours his drink in the machine and breaks it. The reason I like this, uh, as I told you all the time, to sorry to repeat it through the magic of audio, <laughs> um, is is that that's the whole point of the movie, right? Like he thinks he's in control, realizes mm-hmm. he isn't, and then decides to break it because there's no point. He knows he can't win yeah. anymore, which is what oh, they do yeah. with the whole base, right? Yeah. Um, they it's one of these things where the first time I watched the movie, I'm like is the point of this that he's bad at chess? Like, and has a really like, bad anger management issue. Yeah, like, you know, he really should just be, like, drinking alone in his shack, which, granted, is what he says he wants to do, right? But, you know, they they tell you explicitly what the themes are, and they show you how the main character, who they, you know, are kind of signaling is going to be the guy you're going to want to watch. They show you how he responds to these kinds of situations, you know, even if it's not, like exactly rational in that case you learn everything you need to know about you know kurt muscle as his character yeah Yeah, for real the first the first minute and a half so i would say there there are a couple certainly the most memorable scene is um when the doctor tries to put the paddles on the the guy who is yeah Um, yeah, go watch that clip if you want it goes right through yeah so um should we tell him yeah him. yeah so the, this this thing that he thinks is a corpse he's trying to revive his friend he um but it turns out it's a thing so as he tries to put the paddles down in his chest the chest opens up and uh chomps off his arms yeah mm-hmm. he so just falls right little, through a, the cavity his chest cavity is insane yeah. um so that's that's certainly uh right up there towards the top um that was the first huge jump scare i think too for the for the most of the crew it's, uh, it was a bit um, like the, the chestburster scene in, in Alien. I think it had the yeah. same, like, um, was that Ridley Scott? He was mm-hmm. definitely a student of John Carpenter in, in that um, mm-hmm. sense. The other thing I liked is um, when they find one of the bits of science, I think there were only like two or three things where they're actually doing any science in the movie. <laughs> one of them was like, how do we identify which of us is a thing? Um, okay, we know that it's... It's each independent part of this organism is trying to survive. So if we take a blood sample from everybody um, and I try to, you know, damage, I think you use a soldering iron to, to yeah. heat up the blood or touch it to the blood. And if, if there's the thing, it's, it's individual cellular components. You know, it looks like blood, but it's going to try to survive on its own. So it's going to recoil from the soldering iron. So the regular mm-hmm. blood just goes tss, and there's a little hits of mm-hmm. steam and then the, the things blood violently reacts so then they know they're like that Brilliant. was one of the coolest like they actually figured it out they had some other method of doing it earlier that didn't work it got sabotaged but this like that was really creative that was actually one of the true bits of like the, the science in the movie mm-hmm. that i appreciated and just how, yeah. how they got to that point i i already talked about the you know that's psychological drama there were multiple scenes where they're all getting together like, like trying to figure out you know there are many conversations what do we do how do we know who's the thing you know how do we trust each other well we don't okay how do we interact with each other in light of the fact that we don't trust each other you know it's in a sense it was you know lord of the flies but with grown-ups oh my gosh it was mm-hmm. 
And also interesting about that scene. And I know we, I think we talked about this while we were watching the movie, but uh, originally Carpenter did not want to do this film. It was based off of, I think he had done another movie and on the TV in his movie was this concept, right? And someone saw that and were like, we want you to make this movie. And he was like, absolutely not. Like, whatever, that was stupid. And uh, so then they did a script and they were like, here, we did a script. You want to look at it? And it was that scene with them testing the blood Hmm. where he, that was the scene where he was like, okay, I'm going to do this movie, which I think Hmm. is really cool because it was a fantastic scene. I think I told Hmm. you the, I watched this movie um, that was my first movie to ever see in like 4k or HD, I forget on a big TV at home. And I literally had to pause it and walk outside. Cause I was like, ah, my nerves is just too much. So if like incidental things on TVs in the background are going to be a thing now, when are they going to make the feature length cheddar goblin? <gasps> I'm so ready. I'm so ready. Uh, everyone go watch Mandy and and you know add us in the comments if you think it should be a full-length movie because cheddar goblin deserves his moment (laughs) (laughs) uh any final thoughts before we wrap up we're already kind of um at our time limit here but any any final things you wanted to talk about I, I, <laughs> Any okay, final well, words? Yeah, I, I recommend it. It's, it's um, especially seeing a lot more recent sci-fi, like I already mentioned Alien and stuff like that. Just seeing uh, the things influence on some of these later movies. That that to me is it wasn't appreciated at the time it flopped, but it, that to me is you know it's a bit like Shakespeare. Like everyone takes it for granted now, but there's mm-hmm. there's a reason why it defined the genre. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I might. Uh, yeah, there's also like things the thing is like doing for the first time that I think when you watch the movie, it's just this like smooth, seamless. Of course, that's how it end to end sort of ending, right? Like yeah. the movie sets up these grave stakes, and as you once you actually understand them, you know it's not going to work out too well for 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 Mr. Russell and the crew, right? But, right. Um, you know, rewatching like like older science fiction movies, you can see that they're they almost kind of want to do it, but they don't have the guts. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of the things I really like about the thing, and I think you know, watching older science movies like The Blob kind of comes to mind. Mm, this is yeah. like, like the they set up this super powerful monster, and then it gets destroyed by a gimmick, right? You know, like yeah. it can be sort of fun, it can be sort of satisfying, you know, to see the characters piece out the puzzle. But the thing is, the first time I've like you know, back when I was starting to get the movies that I like watched a science fiction movie and I was like, Oh, okay. The stakes actually mattered. You know, yeah. when they set up these big things, when they actually explain to you how it works, the movie follows through and doesn't fall over and give you some, you know, deus yes. ex machina way out. Yeah. It's just, it bad, follows right? its own rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah danger important. is danger. That's, um, yeah. One of the things I, I dislike about science fiction movies it's, uh, like the the science i can do like suspension of disbelief or whatever it's when the humans don't act like people would mm-hmm. yeah and that, that yeah. Really bothers me i mean yeah. they really nailed it they got like the human psyche how how it would work so that's i i appreciate those even more when they get it right yeah i agree yeah. that'll take me out of a movie real fast if i'm like oh come on no one would do that right yeah, um, like, except zip up your jackets before you go outside people yeah, yeah. Really, like one or two like i'm gonna go down in the basement alone moments but like not enough to really you know define mm-hmm. the movie for me yeah mm-hmm. and i feel like the times that that did happen were the times when they were most 
skeptical of one another, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it kind of made sense, you know, they were like, oh, I don't trust anyone. So I'm going to go do this on my own. Mm -hmm. But then it turned out very poorly for them. So um, eventually they stopped doing that, which is cool. Yeah, I know at the end when they were setting up to just explode the whole place, uh, we were like, don't go down there by yourself. But like at that point, I think they were already like, screw it. We're all dead. Whatever. Just set this thing on fire. Um, It feels like the movie like takes itself seriously, you know, right? (laughs) Like the people are people. The plot makes sense. Like Uh as the viewer figures out what they should be doing, it's about when the people in the movie are figuring it out. Like it's it's weird how movies can be good when they just like try. Yeah, Yeah, weird, right? Uh, Uh, But yeah, yeah, this is definitely my my favorite sci-fi movie, 100%. My favorite horror movie, my favorite in several genres. And I'm so glad that we were able to watch it, especially with two people who hadn't seen it before because that just made it even more special. And also I feel like we have now appropriately apologized to Haley for making her sit through Armageddon. (laughs) Yes, it was so much better than Armageddon. Yes. Better than Armageddon. You know I think still owe Haley for that. That's a that's a deep hole to dig out of. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Yes. So on, on a scale from Ben Affleck to Kurt Russell, it's much more on the Kurt Russell end. Oh God. Oh yeah. God, yeah. Oh please. <laughs> the stupid Have you seen love him? story. It, the love story in Armageddon was just so dumb and I hated it. I hated every moment of it, but that's it's very nineties, but it had the, it had the song. I used to request that song every time we went to waffle house. Oh gosh. <laughs> like, yeah, oh, so they had say, it in the jukebox. I, I like Aerosmith, you know, to listen to, but they're now any Morricone. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. It didn't, wasn't enough to make up for Armageddon, but hopefully this helped because this is definitely one of the best movies I've ever seen. Yeah, so. it was, it was really good. I liked it a lot. Thanks guys for giving us your astronomical uh, interpretation of <laughs> what happened here. Yeah, yeah, sure. Thanks yeah, for having us on. Time. What's next? I yeah, know, what's right? next? A prequel. A prequel. <laughs> so um, thank you guys for uh coming and uh thank you guys for watching this movie with me it was great except for when i had to go home alone dog sit in the middle of a forest afterwards that was that was pretty pretty not fun uh especially because there was like a fox screaming in the woods somewhere and i was like okay i'm not sleeping tonight it was so bad (laughs) but anyway great movie (laughs) yeah so uh to all our listeners out there i would like to remind you that we do have a discord channel and a twitter and you can see some cool behind the scenes content. Uh, you can also at, use the hashtag, hashtag ask star stuff to ask us any questions you guys might have. Um, feel free to shoot us any questions you might have about the movie or about uh, science in general, whatever you want to ask mm-hmm. questions about. But uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Kyler, Teddy, for coming. It was uh, super fun. <laughs> you guys are fantastic. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. This podcast was made possible by our members and donors. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available, go to lowell.edu donate. Thanks for listening.